and we'll be asking the question, is the Bible pro-slavery? Does the Bible, and by extension, God, approve of slavery? Welcome to the Ryan Holmes podcast, where our goal is to encourage Christian thinking and Christian living. This week, we are bringing you episode number 26, and I just wanted to thank you for um, allowing me a week off. We did not put out an episode last week, and so just thank you for allowing me that break and being understanding. If you have been enjoying this podcast, would you mind heading over to Apple Podcasts if you're not already there and pause the episode now if you could and give us a five-star rating and leave us a review. And again, if you're enjoying it, that'll just help boost the podcast's reach and visibility, and it'll help get uh, get it in front of more people. And that's the goal, really, to uh, to reach more people with this content. And so if you could do that, that would be great. You can also support the work that I'm doing uh, financially and take that extra step by joining our Locals community. So please check out uh, ryanholmespodcast.locals.com and subscribe there for just $5 a month. You'll get additional perks that are specific to our Locals community members, so please go and check that out. Also check out our store at wretchredeemed.com. That's wretchredeemed.com, W-R-E-T-C-H, redeemed. to get some merch today and our locals community members get 10% off every single order. If you prefer video format for this podcast, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and uh, please go ahead and do that. If you have any questions for me about the episode, about the podcast in general, whatever it might be about faith, apologetics, um, yeah, whatever. It's uh, it's open-ended, but uh, you can send me an email to ryanholmespodcast at gmail.com, and I will link to everything below as usual, so you can easily find those things there. So thank you, and um, I hope that you will enjoy today's episode, because today's episode is going to be very interesting. We are talking about a hot topic, if you will. It's about slavery. We're talking about slavery in the Bible. Probably one of the foremost issues brought up by atheists and skeptics alike about the Bible and specifically the Old Testament and what that um, the implications that that has on on God and a good God and whatnot. Um, you know, I could bring up the irony of bringing bringing an objection like that from an atheistic position, objective moral issues uh, from an atheistic position. I'm not going to do that too much today. Um, We've just, we just have too much to cover, and I don't want to prolong the episode because we've had a few long episodes as of late. But um, I've touched on this subject last week, or our last episode, episode 25, episode 24, episode 16, where I covered the um, the deconstruction stories from a few people um, that I know and that are well-known. And then also episode 9 and 10, I did a two-part kind of series there talking about God versus evil, where I talked about the moral objection to God and the moral argument for God. And um, again, I don't want to get it into it too much, but from an atheistic position, there is no such thing as objective moral values and duties. So uh, there would be really no argument to raise against the Bible on moral grounds, because it would simply be your opinion against 
my opinion or somebody's somebody else's opinion, but there isn't anything objectively wrong about um, what the Old Testament has to say about slavery. If you believe that the Old Testament approves of, approves of slavery, which we're going to answer that question today. Again, if you want more on the moral objection to God, the moral argument for God, check out those episodes that I just mentioned and rattled off there. Uh, any one of those, you'll you'll find it. So, uh, if you want to. To, to, to hear that explained and, and kind of fleshed out a little bit. But this is an important subject to properly and clearly understand and explain. Um, and we'll be asking the question, is the Bible pro-slavery? Does the Bible, and by extension God, approve of slavery? If so, that would you know certainly have some serious implications uh, on a, a, a good God. So um, it's important to answer this question, you know, how could a good God approve of such a thing or allow such a thing or say such a thing is good? This is what we are going to unpack in our episode today. So without further ado and delay, we will get right into it. The first thing I just want to touch on, we're going to be talking about a couple things before we actually get into like some specific examples from the the Old Testament, uh, and some portions of Scripture. But we've got to understand first that the Old Testament was not the ideal. The Old Testament was not the ideal. First, we need to we need to have proper context for this whole discussion. We need to know what the Old Testament was intended to do. It's very important that we, that we make sense of this first and foremost. And I, I kind of want to start by giving a little bit of an illustration I want us to consider something. If our if our Western nations decided that we want to export, you know, Western ideals and democracy and, and everything that comes with that to another nation, say another nation like North Korea. North Korea is a full-blown dictatorship and fully isolated from the rest of the world. It's something that's been, it's a country that's been that way for, for generations. And so with that, there's going to be a certain certain way that people think a certain perspective that people have towards the world, living under that, whether they approve of, approve of it or not. And so say, say hypothetically, North Korea collapsed, and we wanted to go in there and bring about, you know, a westernized democracy where free, there's freedom, there's human rights, and, and different things like that. There would still be a lot of a, almost a learning curve for the people there, because they've been under under what they've been under for so long. You can't just bring in a bunch of laws and legislation and assume that people are going to think differently about things. Um, there could even potentially be opposition to the changes. Again, whether you think that that kind of governance is good or not, but this would be a huge obstacle to overcome. Radical change of, of a mindset would be necessary and this wouldn't be something that simply changing the laws would accomplish. It would only be through time that a society can can see that mindset change and head towards the ideal goal of, say, a Western democracy in this situation. There would definitely need to be a process and time for people to start changing their minds and just throwing legislation at them wouldn't necessarily do that. We've got to understand that the ancient Near East is is a is a is foreign to us. The culture, the customs, the people's assumptions, 
would be so alien to us here in our Western world in the 21st century. It would be like looking at another world. Ultimately, we would see societies whose structures were damaged by the fall, um, that were the product of sinful people, and this is the context that God enters into. He raised up a covenant nation, he gave people laws to live by, he helped create a culture for them. He adapted what was ideal, his ideals, to a people whose thoughts and actions were influenced by flawed structures. These laws were necessary for a time, but they were not the permanent divine ideals for all people for all time. In Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 26, God revealed to his people that a new and enduring covenant would be needed. By the Old Testament's own admission, we see that the Mosaic, the Mosaic law was inferior and forward-looking. So the question is, did, did God's ideals come in the New Testament? No, not necessarily. Sure, there was certainly a progression in things, but God's ideals were established in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. From the Old Testament, we understand that humans are made in God's image. They have dignity, they have worth, and they have moral responsibility. And these ideals were ignored and even distorted by fallen sinful man. So God was at work seeking to restore this ideal. Now, I'm going to be making reference to a particular individual. His name is Paul Copan, and he's done a lot of great work on this. He has a book that's called Is God a Moral Monster, which I, I highly recommend every single person buy. And I'm probably actually going to link to that in the show notes below so you can just get right to it, um, find the resource and purchase it for yourself if you like. But he really does unpack a lot of the the difficult passages in the Bible, in the, the Old Testament, and, and you know the weird kind of ubiqu and ubiqu ubiquitous kind of laws in the Old Testament and whatnot, and gives us gives just a really good understanding of what was happening and and explains them in a very in a very clear way. So I encourage you to check that out. But I'm going to be referencing some of his work because I think it's just very good. So I'm going to provide three quotes from him. So just bear with me as I read these. First, the Mosaic law was temporary and as a whole isn't universal and binding upon all humans or, or all cultures. Second, Mosaic times were indeed crude and uncultured in many ways. So Sinai legislation makes a number of moral improvements without completely overhauling ancient Near Eastern social structures and assumptions. God works with Israel as he finds her. He meets his people where they are while seeking to show them a higher ideal in the context of ancient Near Eastern life. As one writer puts it, if human beings are to be treated as real human beings who possess the power of choice, then the better way must come gradually. Otherwise, they will exercise their freedom of choice and turn away from what they do not understand. He goes on. Being the practical God he is, Yahweh, the Old Testament title for the covenant-making God, met his people where they were, but he didn't want to leave them there. God didn't banish all fallen, flawed, ingrained social structures when Israel wasn't ready to handle the ideals. Taking into account the actual, God encoded more feasible laws, though he directed his people toward moral improvement. He condescended by giving Israel a jumping-off place, pointing them to a better path. He goes on, another quote, As we move through the scriptures, we witness a moral advance, or in many ways a movement toward restoring the Genesis ideals. 
In fact, Israel's laws revealed dramatic moral improvements over the practices of the other ancient Near Eastern peoples. God's act of incrementally humanizing ancient Near Eastern structures for Israel meant diminished harshness and an elevated status of debt servants, even if certain negative customs weren't fully eliminated. So it's important first to, to note that the Old Testament was not the ideal. Another thing we need to touch on is the fact that the Old, Old Testament slavery was not the slavery that we have come to know about in recent history, especially in America. We often assume that slavery in the Bible is equivalent to slavery in the antebellum South. Slavery at that time does not resemble slavery, we're talking about slavery in the Old Testament at that time, does not resemble slavery as we know it today and our recent history. It would most resemble what we would describe as indentured service. The Old Testament actually established anti-kidnapping laws. Exodus 21 verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 24 7 says this, if, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This would mean that the type of quote-unquote slavery or debt service in the Old Testament was not like the slavery of the antebellum South. If it did resemble the antebellum South, then those who engaged in that practice would have been put to death. The word slave that we find just as reasonably could be translated as servant. Indentured servitude was part of the economic system at that time. A struggling Israelite, Israelite could sell themselves into indentured service to to a boss or employer. Um, that boss or employer or master would be the Hebrew word Adon. And the term master is, is arguably too strong of a term, just as the term slave is arguably too strong of a term for the Hebrew word abed. What distinguishes this form of slavery, the Old Testament form of slavery, from, from slavery in America, and this is a very crucial and important distinction to make is the fact that people willingly sold themselves and even their entire families into this slavery. I think that if it was certainly the same type of slavery that we've we've come to know here through our Western lens and in in the 21st century, I don't think that people would be willingly selling themselves and their entire families, wives and children, into this type of of slavery. The Old Testament slavery, it was often a starvation prevention method. The experience of, of what this was was something that looked more like paid employment, actually. They could get food on their tables, they could get a roof over their heads, clothing, and so on. So these are, are very important things to establish when you're going to look at specific passages about slavery, because these are often things that people want to overlook and not interact with, and they would rather just pull pull a passage out of, out of its context and attempt to to malign or bash the Bible based on a passage without the proper context, without the proper understanding, and so on. So, what I want to do now is jump into a few passages that are kind of more well known, that are more difficult, 
and it's not going to be an exhaustive list. I could go, we could spend hours on this, but again, I want to encourage you to go check out Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster? He, he does a great job with unpacking these things, but I do want to talk about just a few passages um, today in this episode that I hope will be a help to you. So the first one is Ex- Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 through 20. One. It says this, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Again, the word slave is arguably too harsh here, but it does sound shocking at first. It, it almost sounds like a green light for the, the, the boss, the employer, the master to to beat their slave or their servant. If if the slave or servant is the master's money, does this mean they are simply to be treated as property rather than a person of value? These are these are great questions to ask. These are important things to to explain and understand. What we do know and what we've kind of already talked about is that the Old Testament affirms full personhood of a debt servant. We find this in Genesis 1, verse 26 through 27, Job 31, uh, Deuteronomy 15, and verse 1 through 18. What we need to understand from this particular passage in Exodus chapter 21 is that these are actually protective measures against the abuse of the servant. When that phrase there is used, he shall be avenged, it's the term, the Hebrew term, nakam. This means that if the master were to strike a servant or beat a servant to the point where they died immediately, the the master would be tried for capital punishment. The Hebrew phrase nakam, which it almost always refers to or involves capital punishment, there would be serious consequences for the master. And this theme is echoed or reinforced in Exodus chapter 21, verse 23 through 24, the verses that happen to fall immediately after this servant portion, where it says that you shall pay life for life. And notice in this passage the use of the word rod. A rod would never ever be considered a lethal weapon, like a spear or a sword would be. This would be considered simply a disciplinary tool. Again, not intended to be lethal in any way. So if the servant did not die immediately and happened to die after a day or two, the master would actually be given the benefit of the doubt that there was no murderous intent at play. Of course, if the, if the slave did die immediately, then really no further proof was needed. Something further to this is that if, if any permanent injury resulted, a loss of an eye or tooth, etc., then the servant would have been released debt-free. So we do see in this passage actually a stark contrast and actually a moral upgrade compared to other ancient Near Eastern laws. For example, the Code of Hammurabi, which is an ancient Babylonian law, insisted that for any injury to a slave, payment would be made to the master. So it didn't really matter what happened. In the ancient Near East, masters could essentially treat slaves as they pleased without any recourse. The biblical passage in question upholds the dignity of the debt servant. Now let's address the statement that at the very end there where it says, for the slave is his money. Does this suggest that the slave or the servant was mere property? Again, 
we need to take into consideration the things the things that have already been discussed to clearly understand um, that this is not the biblical perspective towards debt servants. It is not suggested that the debt servant was mere chattel or property. The servant would have come into the master's house to to get out of debt or a financial difficulty that they were facing. The master stood to lose money if he mistreated the servant. His harsh or improper treatment of the servant could impact his own bottom line. And again, if he killed one of his servants, then he would be executed for this crime and this action. Whether a, a slave or a free person, murder was still murder in Israel. So that was Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 through 21. Now I want to move to Exodus chapter 21, verses 2 through 6, another challenging passage in the Old Testament. It says this, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So is, is the Bible suggesting that women and children are treated differently, and in this case unfairly? Apparently, the male servant can come into this employment under this contract and, and leave once his obligation is fulfilled, and yet his wife and children do not have that same luxury. It certainly comes across as wrong if this is indeed what the Bible is teaching. First of all, we are, we're not told specifically that this scenario could not also apply to a woman. Rather, we have, we have actual good reason to believe that this was not gender-specific. Deuteronomy 15 speaks of the sabbatical year and the release of debt servants. And in verse 12, it says this, If your brother, a Hebrew man, or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. So it's pretty explicit that the scenario in question would also apply to a female debt servant. Here's a couple other um Quotes from Paul Copan, some more good stuff from him. Listen to this. He says this, This is another example of case law. If such and such a scenario arises, then this is how to proceed. Case law typically wasn't gender specific. Furthermore, Israelite judges were quite capable of applying the law to male and female alike. An impoverished woman who wasn't given by her father as a pr prospective wife to a widow or divorced man or his son could perform standard household tasks and she could go free by this same law, just as the male servant could. He goes on to say this, As an aside, the term Hebrew at this stage in Israel's history was broader than the term Israelite. The two terms would later be equated. The Habiru were people not formally attached to established states like Egypt or Babylon. They were considered foreigners and non-citizens from the speaker's perspective. So this passage may well refer to a non-Israelite. That means this servant, possibly a foreigner, was to be released after six years unless he preferred the security of his employer's household. 
in this case, he could make the arrangement permanent. But let's for a second assume that the, the male debt servant scenario is the true reading or understanding of this passage. And let's just assume the male, the male debt servant scenario. Say the employer has arranged a marriage between him and a female servant. The employer and, and his family have now engaged in marriage negotiations. The boss would have been making an investment by taking the male servant into his home to work off his debt and would have suffered a loss if someone walked out on the contractual, contractual agreement. In Israel, for a debt to be paid off, the male servant could not just leave with his wife once he was married because he was still under contract. He needed to, to honor this contract. Even when his contract was completed, he couldn't walk away because the family was still an economic asset to his master or his employer. So he would effectively have basically three options. Option number one would be this. He could wait for his family to finish out their terms of service and work elsewhere. Seems like a good option. But however, working else, elsewhere would mean A, separation from his family, and B, he would no longer have food, clothing, and shelter provided. But if he stayed with his family, he would still have to pay for room and board. So some financial challenges would be presented with this scenario. Number two, he could get a job, save his money, and pay his ex-boss to release his wife and kids. Seems like a pretty good option. But it would have been extremely tough at that time to support not only himself, but pay off the debts of his entire family for their release. Option number three, would be that he could commit to a lifelong permanent contract with his master or employer. He could be with his family and have economic stability. He would formalize this contract by legal ceremony before judges and God having his ear pierced with an all. We need to make the effort to, to understand everything rather than just pulling out verses here and there to make a point that doesn't really have biblical and historical backing. We should seek to grasp the nature of Israelite debt service and the social and economic circumstances that would have surrounded the whole thing. These were unfortunate circumstances during difficult economic times, and these laws provided safety nets for protection and not oppression. Okay, let's get to our next passage, and this will be the last one for today, for the sake of time. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 42 through 49. Bear with me as I read it. It says this, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. That would be the year of the release. Then he shall go out from you and he and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them, over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from, from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as 
a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule, one over another ruthlessly. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. So, does this text regard foreign workers as nothing more than property? Again, we must take into consideration the things already touched on in the introduction, and that the things that the Old Testament does affirm about the individual, and specifically the debt servant, but before we, we jump to this conclusion, looking at what precedes this text and other scriptural considerations, we will see a few things. Number one, foreigners were nowhere near chattel slaves. Number two, a significant presence of resentful foreigners required stricter measures than cooperative aliens who willingly followed Israelite law. Number three, foreigners who couldn't own land and were not in Israel for business purposes were typically incorporated into Israelite homes to serve there unless they chose to live elsewhere. Number four, strangers in the land, in the land would have the potential of not only being released but becoming persons of means. For poor foreigners wanting to live in Israel, voluntary servitude was pretty much the only option. We do need to have an understanding of of what Israel was commanded when it when it came to strangers. Leviticus 19 verse 33 through 34 says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 19 says, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So the land did indeed belong to Yahweh. We find this in Leviticus 25, 23, Joshua 22, 19. And he had effectively loaned the land to Israel. So, so foreigners couldn't actually acquire land in Israel. A foreigner, which is the Hebrew term nokri, could become an alien, the Hebrew term ger, if he embraced Israel's ways fully. He would no longer be considered an outsider. Particular allowances were actually made for aliens in terms of gleaning laws and other provisions. The foreigner presumably was not forced to remain in Israel either. Without land, he could still share in community life and religious celebrations of Israel. He could benefit from many improved economic and status perks. Some, some actual real-life examples would have been Rahab or Ruth. Now, an established alien, Ger, and the sojourner, Toshab, had embraced the worship of Yahweh. They had maybe come from another land and sought refuge in Israel for a variety of reasons, whether political or economic. Some examples would have been Abraham in Hebron or Moses in Midian. Now, foreigners, the Hebrew term nokrim, they were in a different category. They potentially came to Israel as a prisoner of war or came to engage in business transactions. So these, these did not embrace Yahweh and did not concern themselves with Israel's purity laws. 
And the purity laws weren't necessarily forced upon them, like eating kosher food and whatnot. An outsider coming to live in Israel did not necessarily mean, it didn't necessarily mean that they would become a household servant. A stranger, the term ger or sojourner, toshab, could become persons of means, and those persons of means could redeem themselves. The foreigner, Hebrew term nokri, often came to engage in business transactions. They were normally present in a country for purposes of trade. This meant that goods or money given to them on credit were usually investments or advance payments on goods, rather than being loans because of poverty. So these are all necessary points to consider before before only considering the downside of foreigners as servants. Paul Copan says this. This is really crucial. So, so listen to this, this point that he makes. Notice something important in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 44 through 47, which is typically overlooked by critics. We've seen that kidnapping and slave trading were clearly prohibited by the Mosaic law. But foreigners would come to Israel as prisoners of war and, given the dangers of an internal uprising, would be pressed into supervised construction or agricultural work. Yet the very sojourners and aliens who were at first pressed into service, verse 45, were the same ones who had the capability of saving up sufficient means, verse 47. Yes, so in principle, all persons in servitude within Israel except criminals could be released. And that's super important to understand. So this this essentially removes the objection about doubts debt servants simply being property without any means of becoming a person of means and redeeming themselves. Now, I think it shouldn't be surprising that, to us at least, that we would expect differences between a native person versus a foreign person and anticipate benefits to to the native person of that land over and above the foreigner. The structures could provide an incentive for the foreigner to become a part of the Israelite community and participate in things like the Passover, which is something an alien could do. The foreigner could not participate because he didn't care to identify himself with Israel's covenant and with Yahweh. Why should loans at cost be given to those who live in Israel and live off of the benefits of Israel without entering into the corporate life and worship of Israel? Paul Copan says this, the foreigner, Nokri, was more like an illegal immigrant. The resident alien or sojourner, the term ger, however, sought to play by Israel's rules. Unlike the resident alien, foreigners weren't willing to abide by Israel's covenant relationship with God, so they shouldn't expect to receive all the privileges of an Israelite citizen. Ruth, the Moabitess, embraced the God of Israel and of her mother-in-law, Naomi. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. That's Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. If Gentiles like Ruth or Rahab or Uriah the Hittite were willing to fully embrace Israel's God, people, the laws, then they could become more easily incorporated into mainstream life in Israel, even if they couldn't own land, and foreigners didn't have to come to Israel at all. In our present day, we provide benefits for our country's own citizens, and to those who wish to go through the proper channels of becoming a citizen, then we would provide someone who is is foreign to our country. So why would we suggest that 
biblical legislation is is wrong for doing this, but today we're morally okay for doing it. These are important things to to consider. Now there's there's so much more that could be said about this subject that I just don't I don't have time to get into today. I I strongly encourage you to check out Paul Copan's book Is God a Moral Monster. It goes in in depth into far more information than I could ever go in a 40-minute podcast. So it's vital to put these things into their proper perspectives before addressing specific biblical passages. Most critics, I find, aren't really willing to do this. So is the Bible pro-slavery? Does the Bible suggest that slavery is a moral good? In no way is this a proper understanding of the Bible. Again, by the Old Testament's own admission, it is not the ideal, and that something greater is still necessary. We need to know that these laws, again, they're not the ideal. They were meeting people, the people of Israel, in their flawed state. They were meant to provide a moral upgrade and to move the people toward the ideal. Also, we need to understand the difference between debt service and chattel slavery. These are two vastly differing realities. We need to be willing to see things through an ancient Near Eastern lens, not what we know now through our Western lens in the 21st century. I hope that those few points, I feel like that was pretty quick, but I mean, it's been 40 minutes, but I feel like those few points on the specific passages were helpful to you. And if you have any further questions about what was discussed today, I I would love to hear from you. But that'll, that'll do it for today's episode. So I appreciate you tuning in. I thank you for that. If you have any questions, again, um, a thought, comment, whatever it might be, send me an email to ryanholmespodcast at gmail.com or comment on this video or reach out to me on social media, whatever that might be. And don't forget to check out ryanholmespodcast.locals.com to join our community. I appreciate any support. And if you are on the YouTube, like, comment, subscribe, hit the bell, and ultimately share this podcast and let's encourage others to think about their faith and live it out. See you next week.